Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. We will begin at 24... 53 is where the triennial division starts. As you know, I try to stay as close to that as possible. So we touch on as many texts of the Torah as possible, not just the ones that are easier to deal with. Uh, And so we're going to look... Actually, let's go back to verse 50, because it's a a little bit clearer place to start, I think. Lavan and Betuel responded by saying, This matter has emanated from Yudhe Vavhe. We cannot answer you one way or the other. Look, Rebecca is before you. Take her and go, and let her be your master's son's wife, as Yudhe Vavhe has decreed. When Abraham's slave heard the words, he bowed low to Yudhe Vavhe, and brought out silver and gold objects and articles of clothing, and gave them to Rebecca, and to her brother and mother he gave precious gifts. So he and the men with him ate and drank and stayed overnight. When they got up in the morning, he said, Send me off to my master. Her brother and mother said, Let the girl stay with us for another few days, ten perhaps, after which she may go. But he said to them, Do not delay me. Now that Yudhe has cleared the way for me, send me off and let me go to my master. They answered, Let us call the girl and see what she has to say. So they called Rebecca and asked her, Will you go with this man? And she said, I will go. Okay. If we read the story in light of the way we've been reading the last two parshiot, if we're going to read the story in light of Sarai having designated Yitzchak as her heir, but we talked about she needs now, right, to, to find the bride, the family needs to find the bride for Yitzchak that will in fact be Sarai's heiress, right, in a different way, inheriting her station within the clan, within her relationship to the sancta, right, her relationship to her position and possibly as priestess originally, yes? So then we talked about the birth of Rebecca, right? We got told about the birth of Rebecca, uh, and there are some commentators who suggest that it is Rebecca who is who is designated for Yitzchak so that Sarai can go back to her clan and, right, pick a female heir for herself for Yitzchak. Okay, so we're gonna we're just because for fun we're gonna read it that way. And Rebecca got here just in time. <laughs> right there, you go. All right, so right already it seems to be that that this is a divine. There's divine intervention here, right, of some kind. Because if you remember the story, we read the whole story of Rebecca last year, right? In the second triennial division, we're in the third triennial division now, so we're getting kind of the the, the end of the. Uh, betrothal scene and so we're getting um, to the place where Eliezer's already prayed to God for what the person should say who is, it's a good problem it's a good problem to have that we are out of chairs <laughs> um, so he, Eliezer's already asked God please have the maiden who's meant for my master's son say the following she says the following right and she demonstrates this alacrity and willingness to run and, and water all the camels and so now we're coming to the end where it's now time to make a deal right let's make a deal so who's, who's missing 
from this scene. It's a, the father. Well, Isaac was not allowed to go. Isaac has to stay home. He's not allowed to leave Canaan. Rebecca's father. Rebecca's father, right? So in the patriarchal narratives, in the patriarchal Middle East, and uh, Near East, it would have been the patriarch. It would have been the father who would have made arrangements for his daughter's marriage. So we don't get a father here. It is Lavan, right? Who is and Betuel who are answering, right? So they say, "Here's Rivka," and. You know, they, they feel like, you know, remember he comes into town with all these hummers filled with, <laughs> with um, stuff, right? With furs and, right? And page jeans, right? So, so it's very clear how wealthy Abraham is. So it seems like this is the deal's kind of happening. So here's Rivka, take her and go and let her be a wife to your master's son as God has spoken. Eliezer has made it this whole big deal that God has answered him. And that it's divinely, you know, ordained that Rivka marry Yitzchak. When Avraham's servant heard their words, he bowed low to the ground. Like he's very, very, very happy that he's found the bride for Yitzchak. The servant brought out objects of silver and gold and garments and gave them to Rebecca. Of course, right? You have to. This is what you do to acquire the bride. And he gave presents to her brother and her mother. Okay, of course you're gonna, you know give wealth to the family of the bride. Then he and the man with him ate and drank, because that's what you do to conclude the deal, right? It's still that way with Jews, right? When you're going to do anything of any import, you eat. eat. (laughs) So they eat and they drink, so everything's fine. They arose, so when they arose the next morning, Eliezer says, I got to go. I got to get back. And, but her brother and mother said, let the maiden remain with us some 10 days. Why? So a party. Right? Engagement. Ten days to fet the bride. Celebrate. <laughs> to celebrate. And to take that takes away from the bride her party. Right? This is about her. So they say let her remain with us there's a lot of things that have to happen there's the bridal shower right there's the opening of the gifts there's the you know whatever whatever the registry right checking off what we got what we didn't get what we're going to return which of the genes fit alright so he said to them do not delay me now that God has made my errand successful give me leave that I may go to my master and they said what All right, so again, verse 57, if you read Hebrew, the third word in the Hebrew, Vayomru, and they said, Nikra la na'ar. Let us call the na'ar. What is na'ar? Young man. Young man. What? Let us call the na'ar. Let us call the youth, and it is male youth. Vanish Allah at Piha, and let us ask her what she thinks, right? So we've talked at length about this last year um, when we read the middle section of the story. It is a Kriktiv. It is written Na'a. It is usually read Na'a, which is feminine youth, but clearly something, and it's not just once. This happened last year in the text we read, and it happens again here. Clearly there is something about Rivka that is Na'ar-like, not Na'ara-like. So what might that be? Her strength. Her strength. She's strong. 
What else? She's a tomboy. She's, a tomboy. She's determined, says Sarah. Oh, she has her own agency. Wait, wait, wait. One more time. Pam, what were you saying? That she has her own agency if they're going to ask her what she thinks. So she has agency in a way that young women who are being arranged for to be acquired do not generally have in the ancient Near East. So already she's out of character, right? So they're using a more descriptive word for how she behaves and, and what's allowed her than other women. Somebody else had something to say? That she has her own voice. She speaks for herself, right, in this instance. And she's treated like a na'a, right? Would they have gone to a 14-year-old girl and said, what do you want to do? Generally not. Why do they ask Grief Cog what she wants to do? And if they don't, what might happen? <laughs> but usually it's like too bad. The family's arranging for who you marry. You don't get a say in that. Yeah, but isn't, it, isn't it true that she's three years old right now? No. No. Unlikely. Because she runs to water the camels. Right. I thought it said there she was You. So just work with me for a second visually, Mark. Think of a water carrier that's clay, ceramic. Right. Now fill it. Right. Now what do you have to do to move it? You have to put it on your head or on your shoulder, right? And she does this back and forth, back and forth, back and forth to water the entire camel train right. who have been crossing the desert. Right. right? Their tanks are empty, right? And so she runs and does it herself. A three-year-old, not a chance. So... Likely that's a midrash and a midrashic tradition that is interested in having her be younger. For, for why, I'm not sure. Um, but she's most likely a maiden of marriageable age, uh, which is why she was hanging around. Where do you water from? The well. The well. Where are marriageable virgins to be found? At the well. Where do the betrothal scenes happen? At the well. Right, so all of the, the, we're getting all the cues and all the signals that say she's a young woman of, of good standing, of a good family, of marriageable age. Because water is transition. Water is transition. Water is life, right? And marriage is all about mm-hmm. continuing the line, right? Okay. So, is there any sense she's bisexual? So there, there's definitely a sense I think that there's something being played with here about gender. She's, she's and to call her na'a repeatedly and it not get corrected, I don't know. Tells me there's a tradition that's being preserved that we don't know what it is exactly, but I, I have to believe there's something going on, right, with the language there. She sounds like she's a large woman. <laughs> she, she sounds like she's a large woman. I mean physically. She's strong. She's definitely strong. She's carrying something this big full of water on her head or whatever. Which is what they did. So it's typical, right, that they would carry the water that way. So she's not doing something atypical. But the fact that she hurries to do it, the fact that she waters all the camels, right, all of that seems to suggest she's, she's a doer. She's definitely a doer. I have a feeling it's her will, though, that they're emphasizing here. Okay. So going to that, right, um, going to exactly what you just said, Judy, Judith, um, he said, uh, where am I? 59. 50, uh, yes, 58. 58. By Rivka. And they call Rivka and they say to her, 
Will you go with this man? Vatomer, and she says, Elech. Tell me the root of this word. Oh. Ha. Telchi. Will you go? And she says, Elech. The Aleph means future tense me. I will go. All right. So who else have something to do with this? Which is to whom? Avraham. So this is one of those places where we see that the rabbis line up Rivka with Avraham. Not with Sarai. Not, right, this, this is the new Avraham. Because if we think about it, think about Yitzchak. What do we really know about Yitzchak? It's kind of wimpish. It's kind of wimpish. Okay, we don't know a lot about Yitzchak, right? We believe a lot of the Yitzchak tradition has been lost to us. But, but we know a lot about Rivka, who in the story with Yitzchak, Yitzchak is going to have a lot to say about the destiny of the future of the family. Yes? As in some ways did Sarai. Yes? Well, last night I was doing homework with my grandson who's in sixth grade and they're in a chapter in social studies or history studying ancient people so I was very impressed they were about, there are two chapters about the Jews mm-hmm. who knew because when I was in school there was nothing <laughs> <laughs> nothing like that That's when I was forward. in school so he was, so we were looking, and he was talking about Abraham and Moses and all these guys. I said, well, where is Rebecca? Where is Sarah? Where is this? So we had this wonderful discussion about patriarchy and what it is and what it means. So <laughs> to be continued. Wait, for the rest of his life, yeah. right? If you, if you have anything to say about it, it's the rest of his life. <laughs> but good for you, Paula, that you took advantage of a teachable moment, right? Because that is so glaring to us who sit in this room every week, right? But think about how many people, if you ask who's, who's Isaac's wife, who's Moshe's wife? How, how long does it take everyone in this room to figure out who Moses' wife is? <laughs> oh, well, that's cheating, Lisa. Um, right? So it's, but it's glaringly obvious to those who sit in this room, which I love about all of you, is that you were like, your first reaction was, that's nice, uh, but excuse me, there, there's something missing here, which is the other half of the story, right? Rita? Uh, just getting back to a laugh, when you said it reminds us of Abraham, maybe that's the connection with Nahar. She's connected to a male, so it could be all of it. Nice. That, that she is like Abraham in that sense. And, you know, the word Na'ar is used because she, she demonstrates these qualities that were very much associated with Abraham. I will go. Right? So all the things it took for Abraham to say, okay, Inani. Right here, I am ready. Um, it, it took those same things for Rebecca. She's never even seen Isaac. She's about to. So, right in the scroll, there are no vowels. So it just says nun ayin resh, naar. Um, there should have been a hey at the end to say naara. That 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 hey tells us how to vocalize the consonants. That hey, right, means it's not ara, not na'ar. Okay. And by the way, 
We, we can't be confident about how we pronounce Hebrew vowels today. Just so you know. Like even when we have the vowels, we have absolutely no idea what they sounded like when it was originally spoken in this time. We have no idea. All right. I mean, they look at, they look at languages surviving like Arabic and Aramaic around, you know, around Hebrew, but it's only a guess. We, we have no idea what those vowels originally would have actually sounded like. Pretty vitally important, too. Those well, so it's entirely possible that if we were to drop back into when this was being, when this was an oral tradition, it's very possible I would understand very little of it. Mm-hmm. Right? So think about Middle English. Exactly. Right? And, yeah. and our English, I mean, it's not quite the same. This, that's more like but Biblical Hebrew to Rabbinic Hebrew or Modern Hebrew. But, but it's that idea that it's the, it's the same roots and the same consonants, but if the vowels are all <laughs> different, then we would understand very little of what's Everything being said. Evolves. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. All right. So accuracy is very difficult in that sense. All right. So where are we, Bert? They then sent their sister Rebecca off with her nurse, with Abraham's slave, and with his men, bestowing this blessing upon Rebecca. Sister, may you become thousands of myriads. May your descendants take possession of the gates of their foes. Rebecca and her servant girls got up and mounted the camels and followed the man as the slave took Rebecca and went off. Now Isaac was coming from the approach to... Oh my gosh. <laughs> Can you give me a hand? Where are you? Oh, but Erla Hairoui. Right, from there. <laughs> <laughs> what she said. <laughs> For he was living in the area of the Negev, going out toward evening to stroll in the field. Isaac looked up and saw camels coming. And Rebekah looked up, seeing Isaac, she got off the camel and said to the slave, Who is this man striding in the field coming to meet us? He is my master, said the slave. Taking a veil, she covered herself. The slave then told Isaac all that he had done. And Isaac brought her into the tent of his mother, Sarah. He took Rebekah and she became his wife and he loved her. Thus did Isaac take comfort after the death of his mother. Okay. <laughs> so, so at verse 61, Vatakam Rivka Vinaaroteha. So interestingly, Rivka got up and she gets up with whom? Her Naarot. Her her group of Naaraz. Oh. <laughs> right, her, her posse, <laughs> but her, but they're described as Naarot, right, as opposed to Rivka. Um, and so they they get on the camels and they batelechna and they lecht <laughs> after the man, right? Because that's what this is all about, lech. Just like Avraham, she's now going to be an immigrant. Right? She's going to have exactly this experience Abraham had, leaving everything that is familiar with no idea where she's going, no idea what that destiny looks like. She's lechem. Because that's what Abrahams do. Right? All right. So she's lechem. Acharehaish, after the guy. Vaikacha evet et rivka vayelech. And the slave, the Eliezer here, takes. He acquires Rivka Vayelech, and he goes. Right? So a lot of lechem here. Right? So very much this resonance of Avraham. Lech lecha, lech lecha, lech lecha. 
ויצחק בא מבוא באר לחי רועי. What is באר לחי רועי? We just studied this. Aha. That is the place where what happens to Hagar? Well, yes. Before that. So yes. But it's also Hagar who sees. Right? Hagar sees the well. Be'er l'hairoi is about a well. The well where God sees me after I see blah, 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 all that tangled Hebrew that we really can't translate. So she's at Be'er l'hairoi. This is where she has the encounter with the malach, with the angel. She, she's seen by the malach. She sees the well. She doesn't want to see the boy die, right? So all of this is, is entangled in Be'er l'hairoi. We think it's just a li- He was coming from Sunset and, Pacific, and PCH. No, this is not about Google Maps. This is about, he's coming from Be'er Lahai Ro'i. So there's going to be stuff about, if it's a well, what does it have to be about? Water. Life. Water. <laughs> water. <laughs> yes, if there's a well, it's about water. But what, life and marriage, right? So he's, of course he's coming from the well. Be'er <laughs> Lahai Ro'i. Coming from there, but with all that's laden on that, so we know there's going to be something about seeing and being seen, right? And God has something to do with it because that's a magic spot, Be'er Lahairoi, right? Hagar's life was saved there. The survival of her son and his progeny is. Depends. It's assured there. All of this is a trigger to the reader, to the, well, not the reader, to the listener. As you're sitting around the campfire, Yitzchak is coming from Be'er Lahai Roi. <gasps> marriage, betrothal, life, the, your genealogy is going to go on, survival is going to be ensured, right? Like all of that comes with this side note. Okay. So he's coming from, happens to be Be'er Lahai Roi. And what happens? He's in the field. And so Yitzchak goes out. Lasuach basadeh. What is lasuach? What does your translation say? Stroll. Strolling. Okay. Um, so okay. So lasuach. If you want to translate it as strolling, comes from Arabic sacha. So an Arabic sacha means to stroll. So if we don't know exactly what a Hebrew word means, we go to cousin languages. Hmm. Like Sahara? Is that what Sahara means? Strolling in the emptiness. There you go. Nicely done, Mehmet, right? He gets a gold star. All right. So from Arabic, Sacha, possibly. Um, but Lasuach, um, a Sicha. What is a Sicha in Hebrew? A conversation. Good, Rita. Sicha, conversation. Then Lasuach means what? If Sicha's conversation, Lasuach means to discuss. So he's going out to the field to discuss. Uh, with whom? With whom <laughs> becomes the first question. And about what? And why would you go out to the Sadeh, to the field, La Suach, to have a conversation? Aha, Jana, the meditator, the player of bowls, family. <laughs> To have a conversation with God. 
Now, where do you think the rabbis go? Is he strolling or talking to God? Of course. He's talking to God. And the rabbis go further and say, not only is he talking to God, but it's in the afternoon. And because our patriarch in the afternoon is talking to God, therefore we have what? Mincha. (laughs) We have mincha. We have the afternoon service. Because... Yitzchak instituted it for us. Thank you, Yitzchak. That we now have this lovely tradition of conversing with God in the afternoon. Mehmet, beautiful. So, actually, to your point, what does Lahit Palel actually mean? Talking to himself. Ah, Go, Mr. President. Lahit Palel, to pray. The heat makes it reflexive. Mm-hmm. It is something I do to myself. This is a reflexive Hebrew verbs, like je me in French. I, I brush my hair, right? It's reflexive. So le heat palel, this makes it two. I, these markers are terrible. Mm-hmm. Richard, I can't find my box. What? They cleaned my office. I can't find my box. I'm I know, but it doesn't help me to have a code on the lock if I can't find the box. <laughs> All right, so, so I know. Sorry, sidebar. So lehit palel two. This makes it reflexive. What is pilel? Judge to judge. Lehit palel. Prayer. The word for prayer in Hebrew means to judge myself. Notice it's not causative. I'm not trying to do anything with whom? God. I'm not trying. It's not that I'm influencing. It's not that I'm manipulating. It's not that I'm begging. Right? Lehit Palel is completely reflexive. Prayer is not about God. God forbid. Because that would suggest God needs prayer. What, God has an ego problem? God forbid, right? So it means it's something I do to myself. Prayer is about changing me. So, or in this case, judging me. But to your point, right, if he's... Lasuach, reconstructionism says Mehmet. So Lasuach here for the rabbis and for the, for the Hasidic tradition was actually, he was talking out loud with God as witness. And that was a Hasidic practice. Rabbi Nachman of Bratzlav was famous for saying you should go outside, be in nature, and talk, have a sicha, have a conversation with God for an hour. And so the practice was they would go outside in nature and just talk for an hour. Try it. We did it at IJS at the Institute for Jewish Spirituality. Mark, they might do it to you. So we had to go out and find a place where no one else could hear us, you know, but we were close enough that, you know, no one's going to get lost. Um, and, you're, and we just had to talk for half an hour. It's the, the Hasidic version of the talking cure. I mean, it's basically psychoanalysis. It's, right. Psychoanalysis, but the analyst doesn't talk back, right, in, the, in this case. The analyst is sitting behind you in a chair while you're lying on the grass, right? And the analyst is the silent God, right? Okay, or yourself, right? The part of you that is divine, however we want to talk about that. So, so this is very much a part of Jewish, becomes a very big part of Jewish tradition, this idea of talking, of conversing um, with God. So what does this tell us about Isaac? Let's say it's meditating, conversing with God, praying. 
contemplative. He's contemplative. He has an inner life. Jana? That he, that he's a searcher. He's a seeker. He's suffering. Suffering, seeker, hold those. That he has a relationship with God. Okay, that he has, he trusts he has a relationship with God. Why, why is he suffering and why might he be so driven to seek? Well, I mean, that whole horrible experience of what happened to his youth, it's going to haunt him until the end. The deed that can't be spoken? What, what is that, Mehmet, that happened to him in his youth? Oh, right. Thank you. Thank you. The big missing piece there. By his father. Yeah. Who misled him? Right. <laughs> who, who, who didn't say anything to him? He didn't mislead him. He didn't say anything. He just said, okay, g- grab some wood. We're going. And they travel for three days, right? There's lots of Midrashim that want to, like, write that conversation. The three days of hiking with wood and stuff and no and no animal for sacrifice well, and possibly that's why he wants to smoke very very nice make the connection for us well it, it's in it's in uh, it's not in the Torah but it's in Midrash that that's why she died so soon thereafter she heard the news as to what had happened and boom gone yes she doesn't just hear the news who tells her the news in the Midrash in the Talmud Who would be really ticked off that Avraham is willing to sacrifice his only son for God? Satan. Satan is furious that Avraham agrees to the sacrifice. And so goes to Sarah and says, uh, is your husband around? <laughs> no? Well, guess where he is, right? And doesn't even make it through the story to the part where, oh, but he didn't do it, right? Bef- Sarah has a heart attack and dies of grief. There's many versions of this in the Talmud. Um, one is that she has a vision, you know, she kind of knows what's happening, she intuits it. Uh, there's many versions of this, but in, in most cases, the, the rabbis are asking the question, why, why is the next time we see Sarah after the story of the Akedah, the binding, it just says she died? Right? So, and so th- they have to answer that question and most of the Midrashim say it's because she knows what's happened and even if the boy's alive because in one version Satan comes to her as Yitzchak so she, she sees Yitzchak but she's told that Avraham bound him to the wood and raised the knife and was ready to do it so now her grief is not about the death of Yitzchak what's her grief? Her fury at Abraham. The death of the understanding of who she thought her husband was. Well, and Isaac loses everything. In what Luke loses his relationship with his understanding of his father, who was his everything, and his mother. He's been basically abandoned from the people that he knows. And and tell me about his home life before all this. Yitzchak's. He loses his brother as well. So, right? He grows up with Ishmael. And he loses Ishmael. Like, and who knows what went on there? The tension there. Who's going to be the heir? How much of an heir? The whole thing? Half a thing? Like, what? whatever, right? There's already stuff going on there. And then he's banished. So Ishmael is sent away. He's lost his brother. 
Let's say they got along or they didn't get along. How trauma, how traumatic that you, all of a sudden your sibling's gone. The heir apparent. Remember, Yishmael stayed Yitzchak's heir, uh, Sarai's heir. So the heir apparent is gone now. Whose place is secure then? Nobody's. Nobody's. So that's one thing. Then he loses his mother either right after or sometime after his father takes him to the mountain and is ready to slaughter him because the invisible new god on the scene said to enter a strong woman (laughs) enter a strong woman woman, right so so we have to hold all of that when we have Isaac outside having a sicha with nobody there's nobody there that we know of right okay is it because he has a relationship with God maybe I have this image of Isaac is just traumatized and he's a seeker and he wants a relationship with something permanent. Does he have one? I don't know. But he's clearly searching. searching. He's hurting. He's, he's lost. He's, and, and, we, and we just see that continue with Yitzhak. Yes, Mehmet? What was his relationship to Hagar? We don't know. We really don't know. Like all we know is from what we read, something has shifted Right, that makes Sarah not happy with the Abraham Hagar arrangement. But possibly yes, that that if she was and and she would have been part of the family and the clan and presumably people didn't take it out on the kids, but who knows, you know, but um, yes, he loses another mother figure in Hagar and Ishmael, a brother, then he loses his father, or at least how do you ever trust, how do you live with a father who's ready to do that to you? And then he loses his mother. All, right, all of that is what's happening right here. So he's in the field, he's doing whatever lasuach means, and then what happens? Leaf no Arab, it's toward evening, so it's in the late afternoon. Vayisa enav. And he lifts up his eyes. Right? Tonight we're going to sing Esa enai. Yeah, lift. I lift up mine eyes to the hills. Right, he lifts his eyes, and when he does, what happens when he lifts his eyes on purpose? Vayar, of course. We always have this. It's be'er lahayroi. Hello. He lifts his eyes, and then of course he's going to see. Abraham lifts his eyes, and what does he see? Three strangers. Right, so. Yitzchak lifts his eyes and what does he see? Behine and yo, gmalim ba'im, camels are coming. <laughs> so a little bit of a denouement there. Okay, so camels are coming. Vatisa rivka et eneha. What happens? He lifts his eyes and sees camels coming. Rivka lifts her eyes. And what is what happens? If she's gonna lift her eyes, what has to follow? She sees. She sees. She sees at Yitzchak. He sees camels. She, she sees Yitzchak. She knows the name of the person she's gonna marry. So so you know, out of whatever's going on, she knows. How does she know that that's Yitzchak? So already a difference in seeing, isn't it? And we've seen this. <laughs> I'm sorry. sorry. So we, we've seen this with, um, with other times about seeing being accurate or not accurate, right? When Judah sees Tamar, what does he see? 
a prostitute, right? So they're seeing and seeing. He sees with Hagar not seeing and not seeing the boy, right? So in this case, he sees the camels. She sees Yitzchak. She, I would even go so far as to say she recognizes that this is Yitzchak. So she always being polite in the next word? She does ask. So she, had to be she, well, well, she can't be sure. <laughs> but, you know, but she seems to, the text seems to suggest that she recognizes this is her intended, right? Vatipol de al hagamal. What does it literally mean, Rita? She fell. She fell off her camel. <laughs> I don't make this stuff up, people. <laughs> she fell from upon the camel. She was in shock. She, she, was in sh- she fell for Yitzchak, quite literally. Yeah. She fell off the camel in shock. I mean, um, you want me to marry this guy? Yeah. Wait, she's like, wait a minute. You didn't bring a photo. I, I don't know about this. This guy's talking to himself in the field. There's nobody there. This is what you want from me? So, um, so she falls off the camel. I mean, it could mean she alit off the camel, right? I suppose, but... But even in biblical Hebrew, tipol, you fall on your face, right? You, yes, it doesn't mean you literally fall on your face, but it, but it does kind of mean dropping, like in a way that's a little more dramatic than descending from the camel. So maybe a lack of control. Um, so she, in some way, she comes off the camel. Vatomer el ha'eved, and she speaks to Eliezer. That's who she knows. That's the only person she knows in this situation, right? I mean, other than her people, is Eliezer. Who's this guy in the field coming to meet us? She assumes he's coming to meet them. We get zero indication of that in the text, right? He's just walking around in the field towards the afternoon, right? Um, but she's assuming he's coming to meet us. And maybe he sees the camels and he turns and, right, and does start to come over to them. We don't know. And the, and the guys and the servant says, Who Adoni? He's my master. And she takes the tsaif, she takes the veil, and titkas, she covers herself. What's happening? Why? Carol says why. Good. This is the most important question we ask in this room. Why? Isn't it a realization she'll be a bride? So whose realization? She knows she's going to be a bride. She's been acquired. Is going to be her husband. I think she's she's covering herself for modesty, and maybe she's scared a little, and you know, wants that extra. Carol says, no. <laughs> Let me just tell you that in Akkadian, in Akkadian, the parent language of Hebrew, a bride on her wedding day is called kalatu kutumu, the veiled bride. So, you know, to Judah's point, she sees Yitzchak, she thinks this is her intended, she asks, who's this guy? And she's told, that's my master, meaning that's the guy she's going to marry so she veils because she now is a bride or she's signaling to Yitzchak 
I'm the bride. Because the next thing that happens is he takes her into his mother's tent. Okay, 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 okay. Hang on, hang on, hang on. You're getting ahead. This is a marriage ceremony here. So she, she... veils herself to say to him and, and what I think about this is is Rivka is controlling the entire oh, she has to. their entire meeting if he doesn't know it's her yeah. he, and it, look she's traveling with a posse of attractive young well bred women young women they're 14 13 15 12 right these young teenage girls it's her Entourage. If she doesn't signal to Yitzchak who she is, what might happen? Choose someone else. He might pick somebody else. And not that he has a choice, it's all been arranged, but imagine if he prefers somebody else, and then it turns out, oh, no, no excuse me, it's me, the big bone girl from southern Alberta. You just couldn't call her small, right? So if, if he had seen another one of the young women, and then she's like, no, 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 wait, uh, it's me. She controls the entire thing. She signals. As yeah. soon as she knows who he is, he's coming towards them. She signals, it's me. I'm your intended. To allow him to interact with her in a way that's appropriate between the betrothed. She's really clarifying it. The whole she's, she's telegraphing it yeah. to everybody. Yeah. I am now the bride. I didn't get my 10-day party, but I'm going to make an entrance, right, <laughs> to, to Canaan. Right? I'm coming in strong. So it was not the other girls. They didn't fail. Correct. Yeah. Correct. So that was the signal that it's only a bride who's going to fail. Yes. They were not normally veiled yeah. it is, is our best indication. Um, Sarah in Egypt was not veiled. And Tamar veils herself only when she's deceiving Judah, right? Only when she's being the, a sacred prostitute. Um, so I don't know. I don't know. But it's strictly a signal of, of being a bride. Is that, is that- That's what it suggests. Yes, that that you're looking at the Akkadian term kalatu kutumtu means kala. Kalatu, right? It's exactly the Hebrew is kala, right? Same in Akkadian, kalatu. But then we get this um, adjective, kutumtu, veiled. So Yitzhak would make no mistake that this is... Correct. That this is happening. This is real. It's about, like, this is, what is it? This is your life and you are completely unprepared for it. Pam? The son was fooled by the veil. Uh, Wait, say it again. Um... Uh, uh, Jacob was fooled. Yes. So that is another indicator that the bride was veiled is because he doesn't recognize that his bride is not Rachel. Mm-hmm. Right. So that would as- that would assume that she's veiled, right? And so he can't see her face. So yes. Also, we talked about her getting off the camel. You don't just hop off the camel. <laughs> You're way up in the air. The ca- I mean, this is a major production. This is a, right, it's a major production. So there's there's a whole thing going on here. It's not just oh, let me hop off the camel, and throw a veil on. Sarah. Go to your mother's tent. Then by veiling herself, she piques his interest. So, because it could have waited, 
right? They could have been introduced, and sure. then you go in and change for the ceremony, right? You go and put on your white your white dress and the train, and right, and get ready, and then you would veil, right? So. So what you're suggesting is she already knows. She, again, she wants to control the... That's what I think. <laughs> so she wants to control the scene, like how this unfolds. And so she veils to pique his interest. That I'm indicating I'm his bride. And if I go ahead and veil now, he hasn't even seen me. It's lovely, seeing. lovely. So much is about seeing, right? All of it's about seeing. <laughs> right, and then she does something so that she won't be seen. Well, except they did, right? So that's that's what I love about our tradition, right? Because all of them do, <laughs> right? All of ours do, right? Yes, women in the ancient Near East in general, right? But all of ours do. <laughs> Rivka's right in line, you know, with with how our women do things. All right. So she covers herself. She veils herself. Um, and the servant told Isaac all the things he had done, right? So we have to imagine <laughs> that he's... For the, for the servant to tell Isaac everything he's done it means the women go to the women's tent and Isaac goes with Eliezer. They sit. They light a pipe. They have tea or really strong, awful coffee. Right? Um, you, and, and they sit. This is, this is now a ritual. Eliezer goes through the ritual telling of everything that's happened. Right? This is, it's going to take a while. We, you know, Torah is very terse. It tells us like this, but it, we can imagine everything in between. They're preparing a feast, right? The women are trying to get things ready. They got to clean Sarah's tent. They have to vacuum. They have to dust. There's a lot to do. It's the <laughs> desert, right? So, so this goes on, and then sometime thereafter, Torah doesn't really care about what happens in between because the important thing is Isaac gets told the, the narrative of what happened, and then it says, He, Yitzchak, brings her into the tent of Sarah Imo, of Sarah, his mother. And he acquired Rivka. And she was to him as a wife. And he loved her. And Yitzchak was comforted. What does your translation say? After the death of his mother. Okay, notice. It's in brackets. Okay, Rita, what does the text actually say in Hebrew? He was comforted. After his mother. I want to leave out the word death. You're going to tell me why, but I really believe it is a, again, I'm, God forbid I would argue with the translators who are brilliant people. I, I think it, it's misleading because you're already filling in something that isn't there in the Hebrew. And I think it not being there in the Hebrew is significant. I don't think it's just after his mother's death. Maybe uh, finding comforts only now after such a long time. So maybe it's distance from her passing. Imo. He finds comfort after his mother. Another strong woman. Meaning no one sits 
He's never met anyone else who could comfort him the way Sarah could. Remember, she was how old when she had Yitzchak? <laughs> old. 99? Well, you know, she's been longing for him her whole life. Imagine the relationship between Sarah and Yitzchak. Not good. Imagine the intensity. <laughs> what did you say over there, Rousseau? Not good. Not good, right? So imagine the intensity of that relationship, right? Yeah. Something about Rivka. Yeah. And they, they're intimate first. He's intimate with her, and then he loved her. That love, I believe, is the comfort, right? He, he loves her. That loving of her, Vayinachem, <coughs> comforted him, Achare Imo, after his mother. Nothing else could touch the love he had with his mother until he has an intimate relationship. Right now, it's a sexual relationship, which we can assume did not happen with Sarah. Um, right? So it's a sexual relationship, so there's already an added intensity, an added component there, right? And there seems to be something about Rivka, right? That that love that he has for her is the only thing to comfort him since his mother. And I don't, don't mean just since her death. Even if she were still alive, that there's been no other thing that could bring him comfort the way Sarah could. His love for her or her love for him. And maybe, it's, maybe this is the beautiful switcheroo, right? Is it her love for him has always been his comfort. But now, what does he find comfort in? Giving. Giving. Loving someone else. A woman loved him in a way that brought him comfort, and he never found it again until he loved a woman with this kind of intensity. Right? A beautiful metaphor, I think, for what it means to grow up. Yes. Right? Our parents comfort us. Their love is the most intense thing we know. Right when Eliana said to me the other day, do you realize that I love you more than anyone else in the world loves you? <laughs> like, like it had just like occurred to her that I might not know that. <laughs> and she goes, and I'm the person you love more than anyone in the whole world. I'm like, yes, I have thought about that before, right? It's occurred to me. Because the intensity of that, like when you start, when it dawns on you, when you start to come online as a young adult, that it's the most intense love you've ever experienced until maturity, until we mature psychologically, spiritually, emotionally, sexually, and, and have a union with another Adult that's not our parents. And in that loving, Yitzchak finds finally a comfort that he would never be able to find outside of his relationship with Sarah. Back to his mother's breast. Yes. But in a whole right in a whole different way. Breasts have only meant one thing. Right? Lying on someone's breast has only meant one thing till now. Now being in relationship to someone's breasts is a whole nother ballgame. And it seems to bring a comfort to Yitzchak, right, that he desperately needs. Yes? There, there are arguments about that. Um, he's obviously old enough to carry wood, to carry a faggot of wood, which would have been heavy, right? And so, and he's schlepping and carrying, and then 
his, he has to agree to go onto the altar. His father doesn't put him on the altar, right? So he's old enough to, to acquiesce, um, to comply, and, and has to be asked to comply. It suggests, <laughs> right? Wouldn't that be, wouldn't that psychologically be the perfect time for us as Jews? It happened in bar mitzvah age, right? Wouldn't we put him up there in front of everybody and say, now sing in a language you don't understand, right? <laughs> and, like, <laughs> and then give a speech about the meaning of this language that you don't understand, right? <laughs> <laughs> I, I wonder besides the, the longing for his mother if he also felt responsible for her death this is a beautiful Rick um, point that you bring up Aviva Zorenberg that I'm about to give you Aviva Zorenberg exactly goes here where she goes is, is that he feels tangled up in Sarah's life in a way that is tragic for him that he knows that she died because she heard uh, yes, she was so worried about him that she died of a heart attack. And so he enters, he's been in Sarah's world and so tied up and, and enmeshed in it that he's also enmeshed in her thinking he might be gone and that that makes her gone mm-hmm. and that he carries that hugely and that it is Rivka's presence that's the only thing that seems to in any way bring him any comfort Yes, after after his mother. Absolutely good insight. Isn't it also possible that he was mad at her and then felt really guilty for never having gone back to her? How could to someone say, be mad way, at their mother, Bert? <laughs> it's possible. If she, if she didn't stop... No, because she didn't stop... She didn't, she didn't stop uh, Abraham from almost killing him, that he was mad at her and never went back to make up with her and to reconcile, and then she died. Why else he might he have been mad? Not, what if she didn't know? Right, the angel comes after they've already left. Mm-hmm. So what, what, what might have been his tangled relationship with Sarah about? What might that have been about? Yeah, I think it probably was pretty complicated. Mm-hmm. He deceives uh, Sarah in that he didn't let her know that his intention to sacrifice Abraham deceived Sarah. But I'm saying Isaac. I have to believe Isaac had a very complicated relationship with Sarah. Any kid who's the only kid who's been waited for, miracle pregnancy after eons of infertility, right? And then everything that it means to be made the heir. Hagar and Ishmael are banished because of him, because of Sarah's right, concern about his status as heir. It's possible Yitzhak really resents on some level all of the pressure, all of the focus, all of the yes, you're the greatest ever, 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 ever. The pressure on a kid to live into that. You know, we call it the hero child. You know, for him to live up to the expectation of the hero child is a lot. And it's a mixed bag, right? Your relationship with the person who does that to you is really mixed. On the one hand, they love you more than anything. On the other hand, you wish they'd go away and leave you be. Right? And stop shining the spotlight on you all the time so that you can mess up. The pressure. The pressure is intense. Right? So, so I can imagine maybe mm-hmm. when she dies, he realizes, oh my, oh my, right? All that tangled. As someone who just lost her mother with whom she had a very complicated relationship, I have a new appreciation in some ways for where Yitzhak is right now. I have a question about the English here. Or maybe the Hebrew. It says, thus did Isaac take comfort after his mother? Period. 
No, is couldn't it be a missing word there? Did the rabbis ever put? I mean, in English, after his mother, they usually just put death. Rejected him, hated him, died, loved him. I mean, you could put. You could. We. I think we a, could put a lot of words right. in there, which is why I think. Translating it after her death mm. is a disservice to the Hebrew because I think the Hebrew is doing exactly what you say. Yeah, I think the Hebrew just draw a big blank there, yeah. right? So you could just kind of fill it in every time you read it with your new understanding of what that relationship might have been about and what the ahava, the love, is about and what the yinachem, what the comfort is about. I think, yes, you could fill in, each year we read it, we could fill in three different new words. Judith, you were trying to say something? I, I think... Freud would have a lot to say about this mm-hmm. and, and actually though I'm certainly not a psychiatrist I think the relationship between a mother and a son and a mother and the son's wife is often fraught with conflict because you both love, you both love the same man and the definition of those loves is sometimes not clarified. Well the interesting part is um, Rebecca and Isaac never have to deal with that. That's right. Yeah. But she's gone. All the stories since then, and in this room, I'll bet we might have one or two um, of that she, kind she of. She may be gone. She may be gone in body, but she's still there. Yes, that's right. Well, yeah, she and, that's what and, would say. and where does he put her? Where does he put Rivka? In Sarah's tent. You are the new Sarah. If we read it through the eyes of Savina Tuval, what's happening? Read it through the lens of Mesopotamia. What just happened? She's the new goddess. Rivka is the new priestess. Rivka has inherited Sarai's role in the clan as the priestess. That's not what Freud would say. Assumption here. Yes, yes. I mean, we're, we're dealing with a patriarchal text and a patriarchal lens, so they're not going to go there. But if we read the way we've been reading the last two weeks, Mesopotamia, what Sarai's expectations would have been, Rivka, it seems Isaac knows that Rivka is Sarah's heir in terms of her ritual role, and he puts her in the priestess's tent. That's where she belongs. <laughs> right? Bert, let me ask you it's like his man at Sarai. He would have to believe that she knew what Abraham was going to do, wouldn't he, in order to be mad at Sarai? Yeah. He could have been mad at her for other reasons, but yeah. But I, I think many children assume that what happens to them is coming from both parents. She let it happen. She, she let stop. it happen. So, or, or it could have been, right, it could have been she let it happen. She let it happen. She let it happen. You could you could have a situation where you have abuse. Which would be inconsistent with what Amy's been saying. There's an intense love. I'm not obviously I'm not a psychiatrist, but there's a strange thing. If she really loved him that desperately, she would have stopped. If she thought that's what he was. I have to believe that. Yes. Many of us blame our happiness on our parents. If they really loved me, then X would not have happened. They wouldn't have gotten divorced. I wouldn't have gotten whatever. Fill in the blank. Yes, Jonna. Um, it, it just seems to me this whole thing is trying well, When Isaac goes into, the, into nature and um, is talking, praying, whatever, and then looks up, and then the shift happens. It's something about his being filled up. This is my own, obviously. <coughs> But that's what we're supposed to do is read our own yeah. <laughs> whatever into this. Somehow he's, he's, he's healing this great pain within this moment or whatever it is, how long it is. And he, he, he 
humbled enough to look up, and then he sees, and then he allows in this strong woman, and he makes him, he says, okay, I, I, I trust again, I, I can love again. Yes. Um, th- there's a beautiful piece that says exactly that, um, that it is, and all, Isaac's Ahava, his love for Rebecca is rooted neither in him projecting Sarah's clothes, he's going to, uh, uh, we understand Ahava here not in the emotional sense, but as a connoting, as connoting an awareness of the sacred energy permeating and connecting every aspect of life. He's opened to a new healing and, and sense of being filled with an awareness that love permeates, right? That love helps him understand that love permeates everything right so but but that's the whole idea that it heals him that Rebecca loving Rebecca heals him in a way that is beyond just pain related to his mother that it's about a a much more like you're saying spiritually life-altering existential awareness of what love is what it can do this love it's unfortunately we know what comes unfortunately we've read ahead so this makes me sad, right? This scene makes me very sad on some level because we know it gets really tangled, right? It gets really tangled between them. But at this moment, he see- yes, this love seems to do something to change him and his understanding of reality that allows him to heal after his mother. Because we could read after his mother to mean after all the complicated twists and turns of love, that th- that's all he's known. Possibly this is, you know, love after his mother is, oh my gosh, it doesn't have to be so complicated. <laughs> right? It can just be love, <laughs> like, without all this junk being dumped on me that comes with it, right? So again, I, I, just leaving that word his, after his mother's death, I think, changes the whole thing. Okay, we're going to look quickly at Aviva Zornberg, because Rick, it goes to your point. Look at the bottom of 138. You see my markings, yes? All right. So Rashi points to a spotlight. He spotlights here the issue of Isaac's entanglement with his mother's life, her very kiyum, her very existence, the very problem of her existence, like existing and not existing, right? He doesn't mean that she existed was a problem, right? The, the problem is her existing and not existing. Um, the existential anguish of her last moment which in the intuition of Kimat Shiloh, which is quoting the Rashi, Rashi's comments, retroactively confirms the contingency of a life and emerges in a strangled wail. This is what Isaac is involved with. His mother's anguished, strangled, dying wail that is about him not existing. It ends her existence. He is caught up in the vertigo of her being. For Isaac to be comforted, right, is what she's quoting what we just read. For Isaac to be comforted is to free himself of this fascination with his mother's pain and to turn to his own life. Rashi often explains the word nechama, comfort, or regret as machshava acheret, a different thought. Jana, this is to your point also. The notion is that comfort and regret both imply a shift in paradigms, 
allowing new questions, new anomalies to remove one from old preoccupations. In this reading, therefore, Isaac is freed from his preoccupation with his mother's life. He is, he is freed essentially for new thoughts, a new way of thinking his existence. A very interesting interpretation of being comforted. Right? Is machshava acheret, a different way of thinking. Often, how do we find comfort in a situation? We think about it differently. Right? That yes, that was really hard, that was really scary, that was really awful. I came through it. I made it. I'm stronger than I knew. Right? Think hip surgery. So if you know you, you, I am scarred. I am different, but I am right. I am somebody I didn't understand myself to be before. We we think about. We have a machshava acheret, a different way of thinking about it, and that is the source of our comfort. Not that not that existential reality has changed. Reality is what it is. It's my new way of thinking about it that allows me to relate to it. D- differently, right? And have a different response. And to, to see it differently. Beautiful, Jana. To, to Judith's uh, Freudian point, that, that tent to me is very loaded. Yes. yes. <laughs> it is to the rabbis, too. That's one to me I see as a womb, possibly, but I also see it as a transitional object for him to be able to yeah. bring his new wife in, into his mother's place and hopefully to his tent eventually. Um, No, she would stay in her tent, Um, but not necessarily his mother's tent, right? So what I hear you saying is eventually, hopefully, she would move out of Sarah's tent, right, into her into her own. This was a healthy step. So that this this ohel, this tent, Sarah's tent as the womb, absolutely, right? Because Rivka's going to bring what's going to happen in Rivka's womb. What else happens in there? They fight. All the twins. They fight in her to the point where she's ready to like say, if this is what it's going to be about, just like we don't get anything in the Hebrew. We can imagine it's a gesture. Like mm-hmm. it's so bad that she's like ready to be done, right? So that womb is fraught. Her womb is fraught, and so is the tent. And that tent is fraught, as will the family tent be when she deceives Yitzchak to make her favored son Yaakov the heir. Mm-hmm. Right? So absolutely. Okay, so I have one more hand. Did we see another hand? Um, let's go to just quickly 139. I know I need to let you go. Let's look at my second marking there. The implicit understanding behind the Midrash. You can read the Midrash. Um, this is about the tent. This Midrash is about every time he entered the tent, it was in darkness until Rivka comes. And now the tent is lit up again. The implicit understanding behind the Midrash is that Isaac does in reality suffer a kind of death at the Akedah. His mother dies at the Akedah and with her, the light of her tent. In an astonishing fusion of images, the tent of her intimate life. We can't forget she didn't just live there. What happens in the woman's tent? She can the, the, right, she, they make love. The husband comes to the woman's tent for intimacy. So it's his mother's, not just her tent, it's, it's the place of her intimacy with Avraham. Uh, the tent of her intimate life, beca- and not just sex, but I mean, 
all the intimacies of brushing one's hair, flossing one's teeth, like what, right, putting, uh, right, undressing. All those things are very intimate. Those were very separate in the ancient world. Very separate. The men didn't see that stuff. It was very private. Women did that with women, not with men. So, her intimate life becomes the energy that affirms life. Light, claims the Midrash, is by definition the meaning of ohel, of tent. To have left one's tent in darkness is to deny the value of being. (laughs) I love it when the room reacts. The anguish of Isaac's reaction as he enters the condition of his mother's life, read tent, expresses a desperate involvement in the wailing of her end. With Rebecca's coming, the energy of hope returns because he now can see his mother's life as though she really had her being. Through the prism of his relationship with Rebecca, his mother's existence, her kiyum, becomes vital again. He's freed from the, the absolute captivating darkness of how she died and the darkness of her tent whenever he goes... Read tent as her existence. And he's now able to see, we can imagine, stepping back, seeing a light in that tent. He's now able to see Sarai outside of that moment. To appreciate her existence outside of maybe even her fascination with him. She had a whole life before him. Right? And he's able now to shift and see her existence in a way that frees him from the hyper-focus on that one point of agony that was his death on the altar, because something died in Yitzchak on the altar, I believe. We, he's never really whole again, right? Something died on that altar. It had to. Sure. Innocence, naivete, what love actually means, trust. He's a child, right? So that dies, and, it's, and that's superimposed the same moment Sarah dies. The same moment that Yitzchak dies on that altar, so does Sarah, according to Midrash. And Zorenberg's always going to read through the lens of Midrash, always. Right? So Sarah dies also. And he is caught in all of that and what that means until this moment. Until the light, capital L, comes on in Sarah's tent read existence. And now he's able, right, to move forward with hope about, I believe, Zorenberg is suggesting his own existence. He chose life. He ch- he's choosing. There. He's, he, he's making a He has now a different perspective. perspective. Is he free? I will say. I think, she, I think she's saying he's free. Free. In, in, a, in a, an important, very important way. So in, in some sense, based on uh, everything that Isaac has gone through throughout his life. Uh, he is, he's actually sh- a shattered person. He's in pieces, literally. Um, and there's um, something about, now is it something about Rebecca herself or something about uh, his willingness to let love into his life? that allows for this sort of reintegration. Yes. 
<laughs> All right, Mr. Mathematician, you can, you, can, you can say how those things both are true at the same time. All right, so um, what I want to leave us with is, look, we, we are right now in this existential moment post-Pittsburgh. We are in the darkness. We, the, the light is off in the tent. Right, in terms of like how we're, you know how a lot of us have been feeling, personally, also on top of my own personal grief for my right dead mother. There's just there's so much here at this moment, and I think this spiritual teaching is critical for us to remember. The light comes on in the tent only through ahava, only through love. The love that we build here as a community, the love that we have in this room, the love that we have for our tradition, the love for those who are gone, the love for the ones who are ahead of us for whom we're preserving all of this and trying to change the world so that they have a different existence. That love is our only hope. It is the only thing that's going to bring the lights back on. And when you walk out into the foyer today, notice the design, the architectural design of this building. It's built to look like a tent. This is our ohel. This is both our tent, our spiritual home, but it's also, like Zorenberg says, our existence. And we will not let it stay dark. We will not. So we will gather tonight for Solidarity Shabbat, for hashtag show up for Shabbat, for all the other things that's being called, because people need, right, to affirm, we need to affirm that the light is on in this tent and it will stay on through Ahava, through love. May we be strengthened and vulnerable enough to be open to it and strong enough to lean into what that will call from us. Shabbat Shalom. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday morning Torah study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.